Welcome to Leaders of the West, a podcast for innovators and changemakers. I'm your host, Jesse Jarvis, the founder of Of the West, and I'm sitting down with agriculturalists, entrepreneurs, executives, and everyone in between with the goal of digging into the strategies, mindsets, and lessons that have been crucial to the success of ag and Western. Whether you're carrying on the next generation of your family's operation, starting something from scratch, or determined to climb up the leadership ladder, we're going to inspire you to continue to dream big, growing not just you, but the future of agriculture and Western as a whole. Let's go. Hello, everybody. Happy whatever day it is that you are listening to this. I am so excited about today's conversation. So typically when I record these intros, it kind of depends. Sometimes if I have time, I'll do it before the guest. Sometimes I don't have enough time before, so I will do it after the fact. And I am doing this one after the fact. So we've already had this conversation. And holy cow, you guys, I wish that you could see me right now because I have the biggest smile on my face. This conversation, this man is absolutely incredible. And the fact that our industry gets to share him and that I get to share him with all of you today is something that really is a pinch me moment. So now that I have really built this up, today's guest is Pat Fitzgerald. Pat is currently the CEO of the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum. Prior to leading the team at the Cowboy, Pat has worked for a number of companies that are absolutely considered household names across a variety of industries. He worked for Campbell Soup Company. He worked at Citibank. He also spent time at Walt Disney Studios. And from Walt Disney, Steve Jobs brought him over to Apple to be a vice president over iTunes. He is somebody who, in our conversation, he talks a little bit about what he did. And part of his role was the podcast development for Apple and iTunes. So the fact that we were able to record a podcast with a man whose work made such a monumental impact for the future of podcasts and the existence of podcasts in general is just an absolutely pinch me moment for me. And he is somebody who is so wise and I'm really excited to get to share his wisdom and just his knowledge with all of you today. So I absolutely have a newfound mentor and hero in Patrick Fitzgerald. And I hope that you guys enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Well, Pat, thank you so much for sitting down and hanging out with us today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your career and what has led you to the helm of the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum? You got it, Jesse. Thanks a lot for asking. So I'm a native Oklahoman, born and raised here. I went to college here as well, small, small college where we had the number one rodeo team in the country. I didn't know anything about rodeo until I went to college. Really, I saw some, but some of my friends were bull riders and and barrel racers and all that kind of stuff. And so I I learned a lot about rodeo and uh, as a sport and and actually helped a lot of them with some things that they needed to do because I ran a sporting goods store. Met my wife there, um, who is a uh, grew up on a farm with, and ran cattle as well. So I'm a city guy. So we got married in college, and, uh, and then the track went from there. We graduated, and I left and went to work in the food business because I figured everybody's got to eat. It was a great thing to do. I worked for Campbell Soup, did that for ten years and all around the country, and did a big change management program for them as well. And so I became this change manager that I never thought I would ever be. And then it's kind of morphed my career. And then I was hired by Citibank to do the same thing, to come in and think differently. And so I went in and I ran the Caribbean and Central America for Citibank uh, living in uh, Puerto Rico. 
and did that for a bit, and then uh, and then did strategic planning for them out of Buenos Aires, uh, but commuted, living still in Dallas. And then I was recruited to come to Disney as they were looking to to change the entertainment world and become a, a consumer packaged goods world, aka begin to sell movies um, where before they did and they just showed movies. And so I went there and ran uh, was the number two in that division. And then we launched it globally and ended up taking it from a couple of billion dollars to over a $40 billion business for, for Disney Studios, where I also took um, and I was in charge of what a consumer is looking at. So we saw the digital coming uh, ahead of everybody else. And so we began to, to run digital. So I led the digital transformation for Disney, as you see today from movies everywhere. And we actually wrote the plan for Disney Plus in 2006. Couldn't launch it in 2016 because the content wasn't all there. So we, the team and I, we we launched that how to go to direct to consumer. Anyways, I, I I like you know puzzles and thinking differently and looking at consumer behavior and where that goes. And in that process, you know, Steve Jobs was on our board. Uh, we had bought Pixar, and I was doing a lot of work with Steve. He had a need for some similar things at uh, Apple, and so then I went and I left Disney and went to Apple. And was just number two at iTunes, helping to launch uh, globally iTunes and as well as content globally and various local content and those things. And then running several products, ran the podcast product, ran the gift card product, and then also ran the operation side behind everything at iTunes with the team that I had. And then I retired in 2011, coached high school basketball for a couple of years, worked on a lot of nonprofits got back into uh, venture capital and private equity. And then we moved to Oklahoma where our kids had gone to college and stayed. And so we came back here and then I was on the governor's cabinet for a couple of years doing some things here. And then I got a call about this great opportunity at the Cowboy. And the person that I worked with on the governor's cabinet was the CEO here. And she had said she would be here for five years. And then five years was up and she did a phenomenal job of building a great team and stabilizing this place. And then it was my turn from a creative standpoint to come and figure out storytelling and, and how to take this to the next level with storytelling and, and bringing this not only, not only to the front, cause we're a national museum, but not only to Oklahoma, but to the world. And so we have a lot of travelers that come here from around the world and, and from outside of Oklahoma, more than half of the people that visit us are from outside of Oklahoma. And then about 10% are from around the world. And so we want to build that and build that bigger. It was a perfect role for me. I kind of came out of semi-retirement to do this role. And what I tell everybody is all the other roles I've done in my life, obviously they were P&L with profit and loss statements. This is the first one that's a P that has a purpose. And so this P is the most important P of anything I've ever done because of the values of the West and, and what the National Cowboy and West Heritage Museum you know, speaks to and the stories that we tell here, how to unlock that to get that into more people. And we've launched a, a new a marketing whole program called Find Your West. And so everybody can find their West here, no matter what you are, if you're Jewish, Native American, you know, Anglo, you know, uh, African-American, you can find your West. We have your story and we want you to see that story and we, we want to see yourself here. And so that's the new big push we're pushing right now. That's my that's my cliff note version of me. So, well, holy cow! Let me say the fact that you have worked at Campbell Soup and Citibank and Walt Disney and Apple, and now you are leading the charge for the Cowboy and and American West. 
we are so lucky to have you and your experiences and and continuing to tell our story. For those of our listeners who might not be familiar with the the Cowboy and the Western Heritage Museum, can you tell us a little bit about it and its mission? Absolutely. So it was established in 1955. It was opened in 1965. We've had over 10 million visitors here since that time frame. The mission of this is to be the place, the, the number one place in the world to tell the stories of the West and to end the values. And so we want to tell that through art and artifacts. And so that's the key piece of of what we do here and what we do very, very well. And we tell the true and authentic stories, not necessarily the stories that you see in Hollywood, because they're not necessarily the same. We do tell the Hollywood story too, but the real story of the cowboy and the real story of Native American isn't necessarily the same story that you see from the movies. No, absolutely not. Okay, so let's talk about your career because I am still just so impressed with all that you've done. And I know that a lot of our listeners are too. And as we mentioned, you have been at some of the the nation's, the world's top companies. What does it really take to climb the executive ladder at those types of companies? What kind of lessons have you learned along the way? You know, I had a good professor that once said, you know, the definition of luck is where preparation meets opportunity. And I think that's part of it. You know, you some of it's luck, but the luck was there because of uh, the opportunity was was there and my and I was prepared meaning that I always was taking on something extra, you know? So for me, you know, it wasn't good enough to say just to do my job. I wanted to do my job really well, but I wanted to do that extra. And so what else could I do? What else could I see around the corner that we could be able to do? And so just doing your job every day isn't enough. I had to be vocal on what I saw, what what consumer behavior I saw, or what things we could be doing differently. And that was what really took me on a good path because I was able to communicate and articulate that in a way where people saw that and they said, well, let's go try that. And for most times they worked, <laughs> not always did they always work, but when they didn't work, we learned from that and we moved on to something, you know, use that to make it better. But for the most part, they worked. And so my success rate has been very good in these companies of uh, doing things differently. That's why I became somewhat of a change manager. I was brought into these companies to do things very differently the way they've done them in the past. That's how I was brought in. I morphed that in Campbell's. I did it at Citibank. I did it with Disney. I did it with Apple. And I was brought in. And very similar here, you know, we have a museum that's wonderful, but we haven't unlocked the stories. We haven't told the stories. We haven't brought them forward so we can get an emotional connection to the stories. And now that we're beginning to do that, people are beginning to see that differently. And we're leveraging technology as well to help tell our story, not to for technology's sake, but to appeal towards younger generations because museums right now have the most wonderful stories, but most consumers, if they're younger, just don't see it for them. They see it for the people over 50, but it's not. And so we've got to bring that back into, back into the place because, you know, younger generations want experiences. And so we want to create those experiences so that then they can take from that experience and, and they don't want to be educated you know, but they want to do it through gamification or for experiences. And so we can educate by creating fun and doing those things in a different way. And you're still in a museum seeing the best art in the world, the best artifacts in the world, but we can also be great storytellers and bring that together at the same time. Oh, so let's talk more about that. Cause that is something that I've always been fascinated by because I am a firm believer in, well, this is how we've always done it. That's not a very strong phrase is how I should say that. But at the same time, you are in a very unique place where you are honoring the past 
So there kind of has to be a balance there of honoring the past, but bringing it forward into the future and continuing to innovate, but also not getting lost and forgetting who we are. How does, how does that really work? I think you said it really well, Jesse. That is, that is the trick, right? So, cause you don't want to ostracize the past and you don't want, you want to pay reverence to all those past stories. But at the same time, those past stories, you know, uh, there are, there are new mediums and ways to tell those stories still that people will want to engage with. So if I, if I just tell the story the same old way, I'm going to reach a certain audience. But if I tell that same story and I now tell it with some multimedia, I, I give a big, for instance, you know, we have the cowboy origin story here. Most people don't know the cowboy wasn't white. The cowboy was African-American and Hispanic. That was the original cowboy. The cowboys didn't really have guns because they used the rope. The rope and all that stuff came from Africa and Spain. And so all the t- cowboy tools and what you know from the Westerns isn't real. And so did it morph there from the Westerns? Yes. But we tell the real story always have. So we're unlocking that story and we're using multimedia as well to tell the story that we have with the art and artifacts to bring it together and to bring it together in a more powerful way. So I'm, I'm honoring the past, but I'm using some technology that we use in the future to create a different experience and a different vibe so I can teach generations to come of what this is and then what it, why, and why does it matter? And so why does it matter for them? And what are the values of the cowboy and how does that bring together? And so that's, it's a blend of those. It's it's things I've learned through my career. I learned that at Disney, how to be a great storyteller. I learned at Apple, how to use great technology to tell stories. You know, I learned at Citibank, how to, how to really focus on the guest. I learned at Campbell's, you know, same thing, quality of the brands and how to, what a brand means. And so, you know, so all those things have played together and culminated to, to morph into my one last thing, which is here in my career and to finish my career out, it's something that matters to me. Again, my my wife's family are cattle ranchers. We used to come here when this was called the Cowboy Hall of Fame with my dad. My dad had two saddles and no horses. Why did he have two saddles? Because he wanted to be a cowboy, but he was an air traffic control instructor because it was cool and it was it was so wonderful that the whole dream of the West and you know, growing up here as well and growing up with Native American friends and that culture and that culture is alive. The other thing that's really great about this place is most museums are only about history. We actually have everything that we tell here, our four core stories, which is Native American, uh, cowboy, ranching, and rodeo are all alive and thriving today. And so not only do do we have the historical element, we now have the responsibility to tell the current story and the future story of those things as well. And so that's what we're doing now. We're trying to bring these things up to up to date to be able to tell those stories as well. So on this continued topic of innovation, because one of the things that we know about about the ag and Western industries that we that we talk about a lot, it seems, is that we are a little bit behind. And I think a lot of it is because we do typically use that phrase, well, this is how we've always done it. But because you have such grand outside experiences, what are some of the biggest opportunities for innovation that you see? in agriculture and Western industries? You know, I've seen a lot of it here. You know, we have the university, Oklahoma State University, which is one of the best ag schools in the country right here. And there's all sorts of great ag schools all across the country. And they are doing some of the best uh, using technology, using things to to increase the yields of crops right now. And so they're doing all sorts of things with new fertilizers, new technologies, new new processes. Same thing with equipment. You know, the equipment's getting better and better on how do we go and how do we till the fields? How do we manage those fields? How do we manage the, how do we manage the earth 
of which everything is coming from. What's the right crops to plant and when? And so all those things are being used. And a lot of it's all built from, you know, historic stuff. I mean, my, our grandfathers and those people who did that, they were very knowledgeable and they passed those things on. It's, it's a little bit of how do we use some technology to come in here to help enhance that, enhance the yield, you know, lower some cost so that we can, we can deliver more to the consumer. You know, the, the whole cattle business is, is morphing and changing some for the better, some for the worse, in my opinion, but too, too few, you know, markets now to have to go through. And, you know, so I'm really glad to see these direct consumer things right now from the actual cattle ranchers out there. I think that's, that's really taking off. And I think it's really good for the consumer and it's really great for the rancher because that lifestyle, that is what feeds, feeds not America, but it feeds the world. And so how do we do that better? And so, and a lot of that is coming from the West. Um, the Western United States feeds a lot of people around the world. We sometimes just think about ourselves, but what we do here matters for the whole world. Oh, it does. Well, and you know, you bring up a really good point about direct-to-consumer, specifically beef sales, but I know uh, obviously there are a variety of proteins and, and sources in which you can do that. But that is a really good opportunity for storytelling because it creates connection with that consumer back to the farm or the ranch. And it really, you know, it provides that trust that then if they do go into a grocery store, they feel a lot more confident about it because they know people and they just have more of a, that trust factor. It is. And, and so if you know the story about somebody and you know some details, that trust factor is going to enhance, you know, exponentially. Right. And so and now you also will create a little bit of an emotional connection with that. If you don't know the story, you can't really you can't really get emotional connection. And that's part of storytelling. And that's part of as humans, we like relationships and we like to know a little bit about who we're dealing with and what we're dealing with. And it's that trust. And I think, you know, that that is that is helping our farmers and we, we trust our farmers, our farmers, you know, what they do. And it's a hard job and, uh, and it's a love. I mean, you know, my, my wife's family has done wheat for years, you know, for um, for decades. And, you know, so sometimes great years, sometimes not as good years. And so, you know, and it's a blend of how you do that, but they've, they've morphed over the years of how they, of how they've grown that they have 3000 head of cattle that they run as well in several States. And so that's a huge operation from, from a couple of people running that to make that, you know, get to market and now some direct to consumer as well. What kind of opportunities for innovation do you see for the future when it comes to our industries? I'm really curious to hear your, your input there. You know, I, you know, I've seen some really, really cool things with, um, different kinds of, you know, fertilizers and, and nutrients and things for the soil that will really enhance um, the yield. And I think that's the key right now. If you're a farmer, it's about yield. And so you've got X amount of space. And so how do I get that yield up? And how do I get that yield up on a consistent basis? And again, how do I do that too, where I can't control the weather? And so, you know, I can't control the weather. I can't control factors. And so, you know, how do we, you know, how do we make that happen? Water is a big key issue right now. And so, you know, where do we, where do we resource our water? How does it, where is it coming from? I think, I think those are some key innovation things we have to look at in the future of what do we do and how do we, how do we do that? You know, how do we do that more efficiently? And I know a lot of farms and even in, in, uh, in California right now are struggling because of the water issue. They don't have enough water to produce what they normally produce. And so again, that hurts your yield. So I think that's a big key piece of all those things that help us with the yield part of it, because we have a finite set of space. And so it's it's really about how do I get more out of what I have? Oh, how do I get more out of what I have? I like that. Okay, let's go back to your career for a little bit. 
You've been surrounded by a lot of other high achievers. What would you say that most of them have in common with one another? I would say drive, communication, really good communicators. I think really good listeners. If you're a good communicator, you're a good listener. Now, that's a two-way street. Learning from others, surrounding themselves with really great people and not be uh, afraid to to be outshined, actually, with the people that you surround yourself. Some of the people that you surround yourself are probably going to be uh, move further than you might in your career because they're really good. And I've been the, probably the most proud of that. I've seen that with my mentors as well, where they've surrounded themselves with that. Honest, integrity, and I think we take that for granted, that that is a core value with a lot of people. It's not. I'm not saying that the most people don't have it, but it's not. And so I think those are core things um, that people will come back to. You can be, and as a change person, you're always making, you're, you're changing what people used to do. And, and, and you're doing it in a way that's, it's hard. And so some people embrace change. Some people are scared of change. And so you have to, you have to do it in a, in a, in a soft, but also a rapid fashion because you have to embrace the change when you can not wait for it to happen and say, well, the people aren't really ready. So you've got to get them prepared and get them ready to be able to, to get that. So I think those are what the core leaders have in common is that ability to do that. That's what my boss is that I, that I, that I hold, that I hold high. So. Well, when it comes to change, I think you really have to play offense instead of defense. And I think often we, we want to play defense because we don't necessarily like change, but you're going to have a lot more success in regard to change if you're willing to play offense and be on the forefront of it. I think, Jesse, you said perfectly. And so you have to be offense and you have to say, okay, here's the mission. Here's the path. Let's go at this path. And doesn't mean you alter a little bit of the course. Sure it does, because you've got, you've got data coming in all the time that says, okay, maybe we need to look at some things here or there, but you've got to go for it. You've got to go out and, and have a plan and make it happen. And it will feel uncomfortable for some people. And, you know, we are in a big change mode right here. I mean, we're a museum that's changing. You know, we're, we're now morphing into a guest experience place. You know, we don't have, we don't, we, we no longer have visitors. We have guests here. So we're, we're bringing some of those things in. That's a really different approach, you know, from a visitor to a guest. And, you know, how do we tell stories here? We used to just say, go on your own. Well, we're not doing it anymore. We now have gallery hosts and we are using technology to tell stories. We've engaged with some of the best companies in the world that are developing some phenomenal interactive experiences. We had our first one up right now, and we've got another one coming, an immersive experience coming, that's going to be the first in the museum in the country. And so that is what we have to do to really bring the storytelling to the forefront, but it doesn't take away from our core galleries, which are the heart and soul. It enhances them and enhances that whole story process. So, Okay. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned in your various career experiences? You know, that common sense isn't common. Uh, I think. Uh, so true. <laughs> so it's so true, but it's, it's really, you know, it's really kind of surprising. I think that your upbringing and your work ethic are the most important thing uh, versus your grades. So my success has been driven mostly from people who have the best work ethic and the upbringing from then people who are the smartest in the world. So you can bring the smartest people in the world, but if they don't have the work ethic and the right upbringing, culturally, they're not going to, they're, you're not going to succeed as well as those that have. And so those are probably the biggest two things that I think are counter in corporate culture that you would see. At, at Disney, I'll give you, a, for example, I mean, 
you know, we were like, we need to go hire from the Ivy League schools. And I love Ivy League schools. I mean, that's, they're brilliant. You bring them in, and it was a different approach than when I hired from, from smaller schools that had work ethic or things from the West and the Midwest. I had a totally different group and team. Uh, most of our team um, at, at Disney was mostly Midwesterners. And the ones that succeeded the most were, were in that vein. And why? So you have to look at it and say, they got the same education opportunities. So why were they different? Why did they succeed more? And the reason was, was because their upbringing and their, their work ethic. Well, and that's, that's kind of goes back to what you mentioned about what do, what did those other high achievers around you have? And th- those are the skills that you learn if you grow up in or around agriculture, Western sports, Western lifestyle in general. So what do you wish that more large companies should or could take away from Western culture? I think the, the values, I think the values, the code of the West, which we just leaned in with this this key interactive experience that we just launched here uh, being in November. Uh, I think the, the core values of the Code of the West, ride for the brand, you know, all those things with live each day with courage, you know, just the, the top 10 pieces, they apply to everybody. And they are, if you, if you truly live by them, you will be a better company, a better person, and you'll have better results. And I think that we're missing that today. I think it's the Western values really is at the end of the day. Oh, so you mentioned that you spent a couple of years as a cabinet member to the governor of Oklahoma, and you specifically focused on innovation, entrepreneurship, and then entertainment for the state. I know a lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs or have the dream or goal to be an entrepreneur. What advice would you give them? Build out a story. First thing is, what's your story? What's your story and what are you solving? And so a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs, again, I, I led that here in Oklahoma and I still uh, do a lot of stuff here in Oklahoma with that. It's, you know, what is your story and what are you changing? What is your service or what is your product? And so what's the service? What is your product? What's your story and what are you solving? And so a lot of people forget about the solving thing. And is it a real problem or, or is it a you you think it's a problem? And then the, the second thing and the last thing is how long is that problem going to exist? And so what is the moat that you would put around it? How many, how easy is that to be replicable by somebody else that's bigger or can do it faster? Is it hard to replicate? If it's, if it's really easy to replicate, you're probably going to get bowled over by a bigger company and you're not going to be able to take off the ground. So that is, that is the biggest challenge that I see with a lot of entrepreneurs in this space. And I've worked with a lot of entrepreneurs in the ag space. And I'm, I'm telling you, there are some amazing entrepreneurs in the ag space. You would think these big companies are thinking it through. These entrepreneurs are coming up with some of the best solutions as it relates to yields and crops and equipment and everything else. And it's really amazing to watch. Oh, I completely agree. Well, and you know, it's so interesting that you say that sometimes we we see a problem or we think there's a problem and then you get your MVP out there and you've had it out and you realize, man, this actually isn't a problem, but this is now and you completely pivot or change what it is that your product is in the beginning. And I think that just being able to be flexible and that is a very key piece of being an entrepreneur. You have to be somebody who is willing to change and, and pivot and, and have that flexibility. And when you come from a big company, you're used to doing a part of the solution. When, you go, when you're an entrepreneur, you have to do it all. And so a lot of people that come from big companies that try to become entrepreneurs, you know, kind of fail in that mode. They don't realize, oh, my gosh, I've got to go do everything. So I'm the marketing person. I'm the operations person. I'm the product development person. I'm I'm all those pieces because you can't afford to go hire a team necessarily at the start. 
And then how do you how do you go get that done? And so that's that's the other thing that I see in this space. You know, I've I've, I've represented Oklahoma and uh, in states for all states and entrepreneur. Oklahoma is actually one of the top states in the country for entrepreneurism, but we're also one of the worst states in the country for the entrepreneur to be able to turn into something that actually gets to the market. And so what happened? And so what happened is we don't have the capital here. We, we had a capital issue in this market that we needed to have. So we had great ideas and then the great ideas die because there's no capital to seed them because the coast was where a lot of the entrepreneurialism is kind of seen as, you know, whether it's Boston or New York or Silicon Valley. And that's where a lot of the, the funds were. So we've been bringing a lot of the funds to the Midwest because there's a lot of great spaces here and to the West, to Idaho and Wisconsin and, you know, Minnesota and Wyoming and Montana. There's all these phenomenal ideas, but the, the, the access to funding is not, it's not the same. And so trying to unlock that piece is the next big piece of this uh, for the pioneer to move forward. Ooh, well, you know, that would bring, we may have to have you back just to talk about venture capital, because that's one of those things that people know about it, but it doesn't necessarily seem to get talked about it enough to where people are, for lack of a better word, like truly educated about how the process works. Yeah, it's it's a tough process. We have really uh, turned the corner here. We've got big players from the coast now involved. We've got more venture capital here. We've got more private equity firms here. We've had some billion dollar, you know, turnovers here of companies that have sold out for over a billion. So we've had a couple of really big ones. But the key is the big ones are always going to be there, those unicorns, but it's it's the smaller people that 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 you want, the the fifty million, the hundred million, those kind of things that really then morph into bigger player things. And I call it uh I call it, you know, project sapling, you know, because everybody, every state wants to go after the big company to bring them there. The best thing to do is actually to seed your entrepreneurs and give them the, the fertilizer and the, the care and the things around them so they can grow in your own state because then that that sapling could become the next redwood, become the next big, big thing. And now you've got them, you know, core into your state versus always trying to go and recruit and buy down and pay the guy, you know, from one state to move to another state. So Oh, absolutely. And and we in agriculture know transplants don't always survive. If you are if you are naturally rooted there, <laughs> you have a lot better opportunity to live longer than you are if you're a transplant. I love that, Jesse. I'm gonna use that. That's really that's perfect. That's <laughs> that's exactly so. Oh, okay. Well, let's get into our rapid fire round. I'm I'm so excited. I'm looking forward to hearing your answers. So what's the best piece of business or personal advice that you've ever been given? that uh luck is luck is the definition of uh opportunity and preparation i mean really i mean so being prepared all the time being ready to be embracing those things that come around you because you never know when it's going to come and and being able to take that and make something of it oh i i tell you what i live by the words the harder i work the luckier i get and i think there is so much truth in that okay if you could give people any words of wisdom and you knew that they would take them to heart what would it be I'll I'll do a Martin Luther King quote. The time is always right to do what's right. And so um no matter what, the time is always right to do what is right. And so it's the it's the quote that I live by. And so I have to look in the mirror every day and say did I do what was right? And so did I do what was fair? Integrity, all those things uh need to be there. Did I did I do something that was caring for people, but did I do what was right? And so there's so many opportunities in in management in today's world to do things that are easy, but they're not necessarily right. If you could go to dinner with anybody, dead or alive, who would you pick? Jesus. Simple. Jesus for me. 
you know, I would love to, I would love to meet him personally. I'd love to know more. I will meet him at some point, but I would love to know more. That's, that's for me. So for my fate. Oh, that is a very solid answer. I like that. Okay. Let's talk about your favorite things. This is a kind of a newer question that we've been asking, but do you have a favorite book, podcast, program, product, like a life hack or anything that has changed your life that you think more people need to know about? There's a book called How to Become CEO. It's about maybe, oh gosh, maybe a an hour read at most. And it's all bullet points. Now, some of the things I don't agree with, but I have lived by that book. I got that book in my mid-20s and I have lived by that book, or maybe it was late 20s, but I've lived by that book. I've given that book to many people and it has great advice in there. And whether you're being a CEO or not doesn't matter. It's just advice for business advice as to how to deal with things. And it's it's about integrity. It's about how to deal with things, how to, you know, how to how to do the extra, uh, all those kind of things that I talked about earlier. But that is a that is a book. And then the second book that I would say is Who Moved My Cheese? It's a book that I have given almost everybody that I've worked with in these companies because they go through and they're like, oh my gosh, you know, what are you doing? This is different. And the book is phenomenal. It's again, it's about an hour read. It's a bestseller, but who moved my cheese? It's a great book to give to people when you're going through change management so they can understand that they have a choice of how they go out things and how they do things. It's their choice. But at the end of the day, you are going to be moving that cheese and it's going to be different. And it's their choice of figuring out how to go about their life as well. So. Oh, okay. Well, will you, for those of you listening and you want to read those books, I'll make sure that we link them in the show notes so that they're easy for you guys to find. You bring up a good point about the CEO thing. Even if you're not in business, and I think a lot of people, obviously, when we hear the word CEO, we, we relate it to business. But even if you have no intention of being a CEO, you are still the CEO of you or in your like relationships and, and business advice, whether it is personal or professional or, you know, in your personal relationships. There is a lot that can be taken from business and brought back into your personal life and be just as successful with it. Jesse, perfectly said. I, I totally agree. And so, you know, again, I I had never been a CEO till now, right? So for me, but I live by that book because that book had the right uh, the right ingredients for how to how to react with people and how to how to overcome you know challenges within your within your daily life. So. You know, my wife is the CEO of my family, believe me. And so, and she's, she's awesome at it. And so, yeah, she calls herself the COO, but that's not true. She's the CEO. And, you know, we've been married now almost 39 years and she is, she's phenomenal. And so, you know, she runs everything there extremely well and, and better than I ever could. And because of that, you know, it has allowed me to do things here. And then when I get home, I am, I am, you know, I'm the COO, she's the CEO and, you know, our roles kind of flip and change. And so, uh, but it's been, but it's great to see that. And so everybody has their own self, you know, to live, you know, because it's your brand, right? Jesse's brand is Jesse's brand. Pat's brand is Pat's brand. And so what do I want that brand to stand for? And what do I want people to see in that brand? Just like a Campbell Soup or a Disney is a brand, we have our own brand as well. Oh, well, that is the perfect way to close this episode out. Pat, thank you so much for sitting down today. I have been looking forward to this episode or an interview, I should say, for weeks now. And it is even more than I anticipated. You are such a wealth of knowledge. And I can tell you that the the cowboy and the museum and our industry as a whole is so very lucky to have you. So thank you so much, Pat. And for those of you listening, do us a favor and let us know your favorite takeaway from today's episode. Make sure to share that 
whether that's on Facebook or Instagram, because I'm curious to hear what you found most valuable or most relatable. And we will see you guys back here next week. If you loved this episode, do us a favor and share it with someone else who might find just as much value in it as you did. We're on a mission to continue to grow and strengthen the future of agriculture and Western industries. And you spreading the word helps us make more of a positive impact. It also makes a big difference when you take a minute to go rate and review the show. We can't thank you enough for listening, for sharing, and for loving Ag and Western as much as we do. We'll see you back here for our next episode.